0: Music Hello and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www. Slash taxing matters Today we are talking Code of Practice nine, or COP nine, with Taxing Matters repeat offender Adam Craggs. Rather than repeat Adam's claims to fame, HMRC solicitor's office, tax disputes partner at RPC, literally writing the book on ADR and tax disputes, contributing to every major tax disputes publication in the UK, I thought I'd go right to the heart of the matter. Adam holds the great distinction of having walked into the start of a horror movie plot when he, in his student days, was a security guard at an abandoned, secure hospital facility. And contrary to everything I have ever been taught by Hollywood – Nothing happened other than a raised pulse. Adam survived without incident. Miraculous. Adam, welcome to Taxing Matters.
1: Thank you very much, Alice.
0: So, what exactly is the Code of Practice 9?
1: When HMRC suspect fraud on the part of, of a taxpayer, they have two routes they can go down. There's the formal criminal investigation route, where the taxpayer will will be um, invariably interviewed under caution, and at the end of that process, a decision will be taken by the CPS as to whether or not to proceed with a charge and ultimately a trial. However, there is uh, a civil route, which does sound rather contradictory, but this is HMRC, which we are talking about, and if they decide not to go down the formal criminal investigation route, they can go down what is called the Code of Practice 9 route, COP 9. What this means is that they will write a letter to the taxpayer or his or her advisor and offer them the opportunity to participate in what's called the Contractual Disclosure Facility. What this means is the taxpayer has the option of either accepting that they've behaved in a fraudulent manner and providing details of that fraud to HMRC, and ultimately they will then pay any tax which is due together with interest and penalties. If they decide not to accept that offer, then HMRC will go away and carry out an investigation which could be civil, or it could go straight to the criminal investigation And the taxpayer may either participate and cooperate in that investigation, or if if it is criminal, then obviously they have the right not to participate.
0: So in what kinds of particularly fraud cases would HMRC consider using this process? Are there any criteria? In practice,
1: if HMRC become aware of or receive information and details of a very serious, substantial criminal tax fraud and they are satisfied that there is prima facie evidence which would be sufficient to go down the formal criminal investigation route, then that that normally is the route they would go down, all things being equal. If they feel that a taxpayer has technically behaved in, in a fraudulent manner, but it's not heinous, and perhaps they don't have a huge amount of evidence, the sort of evidence which they would require to justify a criminal investigation and ultimately it, Criminal prosecution, then they may well decide to go down the Code of Practice 9 route. And there are many advantages to, to HMRC in, in doing that. It, it's obviously far less expensive to go down that route rather than a formal criminal investigation. And also, at the end of the process, they will manage to, to obtain uh, a sum of, of tax together with interest and penalties for the Exchequer. So it, it is a very different route. Although there is fraud, it is a civil procedure route. But that said, it's very serious for the taxpayer because if the taxpayer does accept the CDF, the contractual disclosure facility route, then they do have to admit fraud, which obviously is a very serious matter for anyone, but especially for any taxpayers who may be regulated, accountants and, and lawyers being the obvious examples.
0: Assuming the taxpayer has made a decision to engage with this process, what are they expected to do? What does it entail from a taxpayer point of view?
1: They'll receive, as I say, the initial letter uh, from, from HMRC and they have 60 days in which to make a decision. And it's a fairly binary decision. You have to either accept that you will go down the CDF route, and as I say, you provide within that 60 day period an outline disclosure. It's a standard form which HMRC provide with their letter. You can't vary that form or or amend it in any way, and you have to give, uh, as I say, an outline of the fraud which. Although it's an outline, it's still nonetheless fairly um, detailed because HMRC do expect to be able to form a view from that as to the, the level of the fraud and so on. If you decide not to go down that route, then you can either formally write to HMRC and inform them of that fact or you can choose to do nothing. Uh, You're not under any obligation to to formally respond to the letter. And and if you don't respond to the letter, then HMRC will consider that as, as a rejection and will act accordingly.
0: So if you elect to engage in this COP9 process with HMRC, what kinds of outcomes can happen from your experience?
1: I should probably mention that the advantage to taxpayers, if they have carried out some wrongdoing and acted in a fraudulent manner and decide to accept the offer within the 60-day period, they are expected to cooperate with HMRC fully and disclose any, any sort of wrongdoing or tax loss, and HMRC will not have indicated what that is, so that the taxpayer has to be very honest very open and tell HMRC everything. It may well be that HMRC are aware of one particular issue, but the taxpayer actually has committed two or three things which which would constitute a deliberate and fraudulent behavior. All of it has to be disclosed. So the taxpayer shouldn't try and second guess what does HMRC know. I'll just reveal my hand in relation to that particular aspect. You You are expected to be very frank and honest and and disclose everything to HMRC. If you do that, then the quid pro quo, that HMRC will not prosecute you criminally, which is obviously a huge advantage to the taxpayer. So whilst it will cost the taxpayer financially, and obviously there's there's also the reputational damage in, in having to admit fraudulent behavior the advantage is that they will not face a criminal prosecution. So that's that's a very, very big plus for the taxpayer. But as I say, the the advantage for HMRC is they get a large sum of money at the end of the process and it's a lot cheaper for them than than conducting a formal criminal investigation.
0: And when you've made this arrangement to disclose all of this, is there a limited amount of time in which payment can be made? Is that something that needs to be taken into account in engaging with the process? Or is there an an avenue for negotiation?
1: HMRC will invariably ask for a payment on account during that process. So uh, it, it can go on for a very long period of time. It, it obviously depends on, on the facts and the circumstances of, of the case. Some some COP9s can be concluded relatively quickly. Uh, the, the sort of complex COP9s, which we deal with at, at RPC, are not straightforward. And although you will give an outline of the the disclosure within that 60-day period, you would normally work with the client's accountants to prepare a very detailed full disclosure report, which would include everything. And in that would be numbers so that you would calculate how much tax is accepted that the HMRC have not received, which they should have. Um, And you would then have a discussion with the revenue about penalties. But before the process is concluded, HMRC will ask for a payment on account, and if a payment on account is made by the taxpayer, that goes towards establishing that the taxpayer has cooperated fully with HMRC during the process which in turn is very relevant when it comes to the issue of penalties at the end of the process. One of the final things you deal with once you've uh, agreed with HMRC, the, the amount the quantum of tax that's been lost and is owed, uh, interest is, is, is automatic, so there's no discussion about interest, but then you have a discussion about penalties and hopefully you can persuade HMRC that the client has cooperated fully and therefore they should have the the minimum penalty imposed upon them. But that said, there will be a penalty because by definition there's been deliberate conduct, which means although HMRC have a discretion depending upon whether the action was concealed or not concealed and, and, and so on and so forth, you can't get away from the fact there's been deliberate conduct, so there would be a penalty imposed at the end. So towards the the end of the process, you do have to sign a formal disclosure certificate, which will confirm that you have disclosed everything to HMRC, and that's an incredibly important document because if you haven't disclosed everything to HMRC, then quite clearly, as I've mentioned, you may face a criminal investigation, and that form, that document, will be false, and HMRC would be entitled to use that. Also, as part of the sort of sweep up at the end, there are a number of other certificates which you will be expected to sign, One is a statement of your worldwide assets and liabilities, so you have to disclose everything, uh, whether you're a beneficiary in a trust, interest in a company, etc., and also provide a certificate of disclosure in relation to all bank accounts and all credit card and debit cards. So it is very important that when those certificates are signed by the, the client, they are accurate and comprehensive and have not left anything out.
0: So, you've talked about the contractual disclosure facility. What are the ways that that can be breached by a taxpayer? How do they break the protection they've just signed up to?
1: The biggest problem in practice, Alice, is where you have a client who hasn't been completely frank and candid with their advisors and have... I mentioned a few minutes ago, they may be aware of a number of issues. Uh, For example, in in days gone back, they may have had an offshore bank account that hadn't been disclosed to HMRC, or an offshore settlement, or they've been paid in cash, whatever it might be. There may be a number of issues and they have decided just to disclose one to HMRC as part of the, the CDF process. It's a very, very uh, dangerous tactic to deploy because if HMRC are already aware of the other issues or become aware of them, then the protection that they would have ordinarily got from the CDF process um, will go out of the window and evaporate and HMRC will then be entitled to actually commence a formal criminal investigation with the consequences that will follow from that for the taxpayer.
0: What are those consequences for the taxpayer if they don't engage properly?
1: So if, if they've withheld information, uh, having decided to go down the CDF read, I hasten to emphasize, then uh, as I say, HMRC would be entitled to flip the inquiry into a, a formal criminal investigation and ultimately the consequences of that for the taxpayer could be very severe indeed. As we both know, HMRC tend to uh, prosecute taxpayers for tax fraud, relying on the common law offence of cheating the public revenue. And what that entails is potentially um, life imprisonment and an unlimited fine. Now, obviously, in practice, not many taxpayers get locked up for life, but certainly... Depending upon the size of the fraud, the taxpayer, if they um, are found guilty, could expect uh, typically a four-year prison sentence, and so that would have uh, devastating effects for the taxpayer. Not not only loss of liberty, but it's normally loss of livelihood. Their business suffers if it survives at all. Often, it affects personal relationships because husbands and wives sometimes decide that they've had enough if their partner has been in prison for fraud and start divorce proceedings. So it, it really is. Uh, an absolute catastrophe for a taxpayer if they are not honest with HMRC and withhold any sort of relevant information or details as part of that CDF process.
0: So, from your point of view and from your experience, you've talked about being engaging with uh, accountants. Why would someone engage a lawyer for a COP9 process?
1: If any taxpayer or, or taxpayer's advisor who receives notification of a COP9, The revenue themselves do uh, advise that expert uh, specialist advice should be sought. It's, It's not run of the mill, it's not an ordinary HMRC inquiry. So, any advisor, any tax advisor who doesn't have that expert experience does need to seek it out. But in addition to that, The advantage of using lawyers is uh, legal privilege, and just as in any other area where a lawyer is advising and assisting a client, legal privilege applies, which means that uh, all things being equal, uh, subject to improper conduct on the part of the lawyer, then all correspondence and discussions with his or her client is privileged and cannot be disclosed and cannot be obtained by HMRC without the client's consent. And that isn't the case for any other tax advisor, whether it be an accountant or, or a non-accountant. They don't have the advantage of legal privilege. So that, that that is a big plus. It encourages clients to be very open and frank with their advisors, with their team of lawyers and accountants. And in my experience, it does encourage clients who do have something to disclose, to actually discuss it with their advisors, which comes back to the point we were discussing a few minutes ago. Some, sometimes clients are a little bit nervous of talking to non-lawyers because they know that HMRC could obtain that correspondence. When they have the comfort of, of knowing it's cloaked in privilege, then they, they tend to be very open with their advisors, which means they get the best possible advice, can take the right actions and can make where it is necessary and appropriate full disclosure to HMRC.
0: So what are your top tips for the Code of Practice 9?
1: Well, the first and perhaps the most important decision for the client to make is to decide whether or not they are aware of any conduct which uh, would necessitate making that disclosure to HMRC as part of the CDF process. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there's just two decisions to be made. It's either, yes, I think there is something I need to disclose to HMRC, therefore I accept the offer of the CDF, or there isn't. You know, often, I have clients in front of me and they say, Well, I genuinely, Adam, I cannot, I've racked my brains and I cannot think of anything I've done which would have led HMRC to offer me code of practice nine. Uh, and, and in those circumstances, you can't advise a client to accept that they've behaved fraudulently when they're not aware they have. They can't supply any details of any such conduct. And also, it would be very difficult for practice to to fill out the outline disclosure form because you can't actually give them details of the fraud because you're not aware of it. So that is the really important question that has to be answered right at the outset. And of course, that will then determine what follows, whether it'll be a case of HMRC just Going off and carrying out their inquiry on their own, or whether you will actually be engaged in the process and helping them and saying yes i 've done this and shouldn 't have but these are the circumstances, these are the reasons etc cetera, etc cetera. so that is massively important and then the second issue, which I stress to clients is if they have decided to go down the CDF route, then you must disclose everything, incorporate with HMRC. You cannot try to be clever and hold something back because you might get away with it, but if you don't get away with it, then there will be very serious consequences for you indeed.
0: So, other than those two things you've just talked about, are there any other major errors that you see taxpayers make when they're contemplating or going into this procedure?
1: They are the main two. There are some clients I've had where they've thought it was a sort of game of poker, and they wanted to see what the revenue knew before they revealed (laughs) their hand. Which you know, the the, the revenue have done this for many years. They're they're highly trained, very experienced, and they will not uh, reveal, for obvious reasons, what they know. They rely on the taxpayer to disclose everything themselves. So. That would be a serious error as well. Trying to sort of check and guess what HMRC know. I mean, sometimes there there are you know genuine situations where, and I have had this where that the client is aware of of an issue which has been disclosed to HMRC fully, and then HMRC consider there's another issue, and it can get quite frustrating because they are intimating to you and the client there is something else, and they want you to tell them. And then you're discussing in private with the client and saying, Well, look, the revenue clearly think there's something else. There must be, you know, what what is it? What might be of concern to them? And sometimes it transpires the revenue just mistaken, have got the wrong end of, of the stick. Um, I, I had one case not too long ago where they finally started to give us a a clue, a hint, it's it's almost like a board game. Um, And they mentioned expensive German cars and then ultimately they gave us the brand Mercedes-Benz ultimately, there was nothing in it. The the client and his wife simply had two very nice Mercedes-Benz cars, but the revenue had thought that they were importing these cars cheaply from Germany, not declaring anything and selling them uh, once they transferred the steering wheels over and so on and so forth. So it was just a, a mistake on the part of HMRC, but it took quite a while before that became apparent. And you can imagine how frustrating it was for the clients and for me, because we are all sort of sat in a room thinking, what could it be? What is it? What, what concerns HMRC? And um, in the end, we you know, I had a very frank discussion with a revenue officer, who was a very nice lady, and said, I'm afraid you will have to give us a clue because we do not know what you're referring to when you talk about expensive German cars. But got sorted out in the end.
0: So given that we are all mid-lockdown still and uh, there is talk of a second wave, how do you envisage this process having an impact in the future around COVID or any upcoming risks?
1: Yeah, a very good question. Um, part of the process invariably involves a meeting with HMRC. So assuming you've opted to go down the CDF route and you've given them the outline, disclosure details and so on, they are very keen to meet with you and the client to have a discussion, etc. And that normally is in person and, and obviously as a as a regulator and they um, invest a bit of body. They do like to see the whites of your eyes and, and and see body language and so on. And clearly, if those sorts of meetings are having to take place remotely via video link, then uh, there is a disadvantage there. But you know, until we are able to have face-to-face meetings, then those sorts of meetings will have to take place remotely. Although, uh, as, as we all know, that that isn't ideal. Um, there's no alternative. And I think also, given the the, the furlough scheme and, and HMRC have already arrested um, someone for furlough fraud, I suspect that that may lead to quite a lot of COP9s. There'll be some instances, obviously, in the extreme cases where the individuals who have participated in furlough fraud will be prosecuted and and ultimately stand trial. But I think there will be some taxpayers uh, in the less heinous category who may find themselves being offered Code of Practice 9 in relation to suspected furlough fraud.
0: Right. So what Advice. If you've got a taxpayer sitting before you who's thinking about this or concerned that this may arise for them in the future, what advice would you give to anyone who's considering what to do around potential fraud or uh, the risk of fraud and conduct they've committed?
1: Well, in, in relation to suspected furlough fraud, now is the time to act because there is going to be a, a, a sort of window of opportunity where you will have 90 days uh, from the date of Royal Assent of the Finance Act, which I think was the 22nd of July, to uh, disclose any sort of irregularities in relation to the furlough scheme, whether oversight... so we're talking there about innocent mistakes, civil, or even deliberate, there is this opportunity to contact HMRC, and and I I would encourage any employers who do think there may be something um, that needs to be reported to HMRC in relation to the furlough scheme to do that as soon as possible and and to seek out some expert uh, legal advice as part of that process. More generally, so not furlough fraud specific, I always say to clients when I have the initial meeting, unless, of course, they tell me, which isn't frequent, oh, yes, I, I've I've been at it, as it were, and this is what I've been doing, and and, and it's a fair COPGov. But normally I, I do say to them, look, go away, and uh, you know, you've got 60 days to make a decision, so go away. Think about it very carefully. Rack your brains. It's not easy because, you know, speaking personally, I can't remember what I was doing sort of 10 days ago, and, and often with COP9s. Uh, the revenue can go back 20 years because you're talking about deliberate conduct here so that's a long period of time and it's very difficult for people especially business people to remember what they've done from day one when they commence their business activities so go away um you know have a glass of wine or whatever works for you when you want to concentrate and think and then come back to me and if there is anything which you do need to disclose to hmrc then clearly the best route to go down would be the CDF route. But as I've said, if there isn't anything, then clearly you can't pretend there is, and a client shouldn't go down the CDF route, then they have no inkling whatsoever of what it is that concerns HMRC, then we won't go down that route, and and that process is incredibly important. And if you don't go down that route, then, as I've mentioned, HMRC will carry out an investigation, and you may then find out what it is that was troubling them. And then you can, if it's appropriate, engage with them and work collaboratively with them. So it's that initial process right at the outset, the client has to get that right.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for taking us through a quick run through COP9 procedure. And as ever, a big thank you to our producer extraordinaire, Mary, problem solver, Josh, and our musical genius, Andrew Watterson. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. As ever, a full transcript of this episode together with our references can be found on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash matters. If you have any questions for me or for Adam or any topics you would like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe and remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks.